You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome, everyone, to All the Things. This is a show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And as you can see, the chair is empty. It's a very sad day. Our dear friend Monique is sick in bed and pretty much has been since our New Year's Eve party. I mean, it was too much partying on the show. Uh, I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And uh, this is a show where we discuss the cultural issues of the day in light of the historic Christian worldview. And I'm glad you're here. And I want to introduce you to our special guest co-host today, my friend, Rachel Shockey. Welcome, Rachel. <laughs> Yay! Oh, there we go. Yes, I've got my hoop earrings on too. <laughs> now we hear you. Okay. So I also want to uh, let people know that Bob is helping us out today and Emily, but their camera is broken. So we can't see Aww. them. We see the overhead cam. There we go. There's the big one. Uh, Abby's keeping Monique company. And uh, we want to thank everyone for checking out our New Year's Eve party. It was a lot of fun. But uh, like I said, Monique's out sick. And so Rachel's filling in. So Rachel, it's good to have you here. Uh, you're coming to us all the way from the East Coast. Yeah, Clearwater, Florida, Scientology capital of the world. <laughs> So, uh, so we got those tinfoil helmets going. That's right. And we're ready to talk about things on the, uh, what, should we call this the the coast-to-coast -coast edition of all the things? Ooh. Oh, wait, we have a stormtrooper in the house. Nice. <laughs> oh, man, we could spend a whole show just talking about the new Star Wars movie, but there's too many, you know... <laughs> Too, too many people that probably haven't seen it yet. So, well, M Abby made a, a helmet out of foam, so Emily's trying it on here. This is nice. this is my family. Uh, yep. So, I want to encourage everyone to go ahead and click on the share button as we're talking and help share the show. It's a great way to support the show. Want to welcome Rachel's friends and mother-in-law just who are watching the show <laughs> go ahead and like follow share right. do all the things so that you can keep in touch with us and also join us on youtube for the live chat so that we can hear where you are uh watching us today and um enjoying the show and plus we love to take your questions so we had a great time i don't know rachel did you catch the any of the New Year's Eve party that we had a few nights ago? I did. I was eyeing that cake from miles away. <laughs> yes, the cake it... was 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 pretty epic. Abby did yeah. a very good job uh, with the cake. I don't know what camera I'm looking at. There, I'm looking at this one. It's a little different <laughs> setup tonight. I don't know where to look. Uh, so we had a good time reminiscing and uh, talking about how to help the poor. Uh, that was a good mm -hmm. conversation. We talked about some new year's goals for the year. So I want to encourage everyone to be sure to catch the replay. If you missed it, it's available on Spotify, Apple podcasts and Google play. So go do, go make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes. That's a nice graphic. I like it. So 
Yeah. Okay. So like the headphones over those books. <laughs> so Rachel, <laughs> you're here. We're going to interview you a little bit. We uh, had scheduled originally to have you on the show several months ago, and then we had a scheduling conflict come up. And so we thought, Hey, let's, let's pick that up and talk to you about your life as an artist and an apologist. So that'll be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. And you're also a Methodist. Yes. <laughs> Lifelong Methodist. And well, well, since marriage, since marriage. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I've been at Wesleyan's for life, lifelong Wesleyan. It, so <laughs> well, you'll have to break that down even like what the difference is. Cause to me, those are the same thing. Wesleyans and yeah. Methodists. So, uh, but we're going to talk about recent developments in the United Methodist church. And Rachel has been keeping me abreast of that over the last several months. And there was a big announcement, a uh, big article today in the New York times about it and the division among the United Methodists. So I thought it would be great since we were having Rachel on the show, we could also talk about what is happening in the UMC. And Emily is still wearing the Stormtrooper uh, helmet. <laughs> She's running the sound. <laughs> this is an added bonus to the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we might need to use some Star Star Wars uh, sound effects during the show. Though. Yeah, maybe I should get you and yeah. Emily on here to talk about the Mandalorian. You guys could give a little I'm review. I'm up for it. <laughs> yeah. She says, yes, thumbs up to that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started here. Uh, Rachel, I think that what's really cool, when I first met you a couple of years, it's about a year and a half ago now, um, mm -hmm. I got to know you, and you just have a really interesting background of both um, as an artist, but also as a Christian apologist. And so I thought it would be great to to talk about those two worlds that you are trying to bridge. So let's start with the art, you know, tell us a little bit about your journey into becoming an artist and getting interested in art. Yeah. Um, so I was born in 84. That tells you my age. <laughs> I'm sort of depressed uh, right and, now. I'm kind but, of old yeah. enough to be your mother. <laughs> well, <laughs> about a month ago, Chris and I were uh, visiting with each other and, and I revealed that basically she was in college when I was a child. Yes. So I'm very depressed. Yes. <laughs> that evening took a turn. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I was born in 84 and many children in the uh, 80s and early 90s uh, got to see Bob Ross on Saturday mornings on PBS. And uh, I used to be glued to the television set. My dad would come down the stairs making fun of him and, you know, making his little voices about the happy little tree right in here. But I was glued to that. I loved watching him paint. And I just, from a very young age, have just always loved art. Um, my mother always encouraged it. Uh, several of my uh, family members, my grandparents, my, some of my uncles uh, have always been involved some way in, in the arts and just, it was kind of around me. So I uh, was encouraged. I love to go to the library and look at all the picture books of all the great artists and their work. And I would try, you know, my hardest to recreate them. Uh, so it's just been something that I've always enjoyed. And now were you um, an art major in college? I was not, I decided I wanted to keep that separate. So I, my undergrad is in English and communication. I think, I think so maybe I, Emily could relate to that a little bit. <laughs> she likes yeah. art and, but she is an English writing major 
at, at Viola. So um, yeah, and and writing, as we'll discuss, is an art form as well. So and I love stories and art. Uh, visual art is storytelling in a different way. Yeah. So. Well, tell us about the kind of art that you do. Like, I see a couple paintings behind you. I, I'm wondering if maybe those are things that you've created. What what medium do you mainly do your art in? Yeah, so until probably three or four years ago, my main medium was oil. I, I just love the creaminess of it. <laughs> and it's so shiny. I just, it's, I love it. But uh, I started working with watercolors about four years ago, and I'm I'm loving it. Um, so I've been doing a lot more, um, more realism with my watercolors. I, I try to do some of that with my oils. We're showing uh, some I, of your, your paintings oh, yeah. on the screen right now. Bob's on your website and we want to let people know if they want to go browse your paintings. Some of them are for sale and they yeah. can go mm -hmm. check them out. You have a, a, um, a shop on Etsy too, where you make jewelry and Christmas mm -hmm. ornaments and all kinds of things. So people can- All, fun, all kinds of fun things. Yeah, it's, check that out. It's mostly- so, RachelShockeyStudio.com. Thanks for that. Yeah, the um, the work I do is, is mostly in the uh, realism. Um, I'm trying to push into photorealism. I, I love surrealism just because it, it's quirky and fun. So. so when you talk about realism, I'm assuming that means art because I know nothing about art. I have two very okay. artistic children, but I, they must get that 100% from my husband. Okay. They're telling me to look at the right <laughs> camera. Um, so I, I, I don't know anything about realism or surrealism. Like what would the differences between those be? Yeah. So um, surrealism would be taking something that, that looks real and then making it like odd, you know, um, like some people will paint a big painting of a Pez dispenser, but there's something punny about it and it, but it looks real, but you don't realize until you close that it's not real, that's not a photo. And then there's something funny about it that you kind of have to look at it more deeply. So that's kind of more surrealism, okay. I guess, in a way. Um, and then realism is basically trying to, um, depict something very realistically. Um, so like a lot of portraits, uh, people will try to do something where it looks like a photograph. Um, so that's photorealism is, is pushing more of that boundary. And there are so many amazing artists uh, in the world today that can achieve such amazing detail where they even get like the pores in people's skin and the, the hairs all over their face. It's amazing. I want you so, to move your head for a minute so we could see the, the painting right behind you. Oh, yes. yes. There's that's one. one of yours. And there's another there's one. There's another. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. So I know that another one of your passions is apologetics. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about that journey um, into apologetics. Yeah, that's a interesting story because I, so in my undergrad, I, I went there to study English language and literature and communication because I love stories. And uh, I decided because one of, my, one of my professors who was my mentor there uh, encouraged me to apply to a study abroad program that was at Oxford University. So I applied, not thinking I would get accepted because I just, I've always struggled in school. And so uh, but he encouraged me uh, to, to apply, write my essay and everything. And, and I got accepted, shockingly. So I went and um, the experience was not what I had expected. I was 
more overwhelmed with the conversations that I had with fellow students that came on the program who were coming from Christian universities, uh, who had been raised um, on the mission field. Uh, their, some, of their, some of their parents were pastors and some of them, and then a lot of the people that I encountered through lectures um, on the street, at the library, had great questions about Christianity or objections to it that I did not feel prepared to answer. And I had had spirit, experiential knowledge that the Holy Spirit was real. Um, I had gone through my own period of doubt uh, when I was about 15 uh, to 16. Um, I really was struggling with whether or not God existed. And if he did, I, don't, I didn't think he was good. And uh, somebody mentored me. And so I, and then I went on a couple of missions trips and saw miracles uh, and just witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit. So I knew that God was real. And I had some good reasons for believing that he um, that Christ was real and that he had resurrected, but it wasn't until that experience that I realized none of this stuff matters. If I can't explain, if I don't know what I believe and if I can't explain, you know, why I believe it. So I, it kind of sent me on this course of just reading a lot of material by Christian apologists, predominantly Reverend Zacharias, um, William Lane Craig, um, a couple other, uh, great, writers and, and speakers. And so I watched a lot of videos and listened to podcasts. And then it finally just became really clear that uh, the Lord was leading me in the direction to go get my master's in apologetics. So you just graduated a couple weeks ago with your yeah. MA in Christian apologetics from Talbot. Okay, there's the right camera. And mm -hmm. uh, so as you were going through your program, tell, talk to us a little bit about how you saw art intersecting with your interest in apologetics, because it sounds like you, you started studying apologetics because I wouldn't say it was a crisis of faith, but after going to Oxford, you started realizing like, wow, there's a lot of questions I don't know the answers to. And right. But I know that you didn't probably leave your interest in art behind. So talk to us a little bit about that intersection. Yeah. So it actually, that, uh, intersection between apologetics and arts also started at Oxford. It really was a pivotal semester in my life that changed really the course of where I thought I was going to go uh, with my education and just everything else, because it, it also helped me to pick the long essay that I would choose to do through the whole uh, semester that I would research and propose a, a, a question to answer. And the question I chose to answer was, how does uh, society shape the morals of a culture, and also how does how did uh, authors during per, specifically during the period of the rise of the novel in England, how did authors help shape uh, morals within a society? And so I looked at a couple of different books. Um, Pamela was one of them. Um, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, uh, looking at how she was kind of helping to shape. Uh, how women were seen and relationships and now and Emily would want to know society. like where, where were the Bronte sisters? Cause she yeah, much prefers the Bronte sisters over Jane Austen. They're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't include them, but they are amazing. I agree. Um, and then, and then I brought in a, a, a Christian author, one of my favorites, Francine Rivers. I actually wrote her and asked her about a couple of things with regard to her book. And anyway, so the thing that I was curious about is, can the arts help to convey truth and shape morals and can they influence culture? And so 
it, it really struck me as an interesting idea to look at conversion experiences with regard to the arts. Like if people had engaged with a painting or saw a play or heard a song that really struck home and helped them to see the truth of Christianity and maybe sent them on a course of, of searching. So that was what I had set out to do um, with the master's. I, I predominantly went through the master's program with the idea in mind that I would write this thesis, uh, which I just finished this year on that topic. Um, and I looked at conversion experiences in the United Kingdom through um, from 350 BC, or sorry, um, AD uh, through the 1900s. So now you, I know that you even developed as part of your thesis project an art exhibit. Um, mm -hmm. So talk to us about that um, and how you how you say this word because <laughs> I see this on social media all the time and I don't know what this is called. Yeah, it, it's an old English. Uh, that's I love old English literature. So it's old English. It's a hoppy and toe is how you say it. So you have that like huh, sound, a hoppy and toe. And uh, it's, it basically means um, to place your faith in your trust in. And so it's, it's giving my apologetic, my, my reasons for faith in Christ. So it's telling my, my story within God's bigger story. So that's why it says a, a meta narrative of the ultimate narrative. I, so I'm going to have Bob scroll down here a little bit so people can kind of get a feel okay. for some of the pieces that are in this show. And it's actually a traveling show. Yeah, keep 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 scrolling there. Right. Um, it's so a if show. if keep going. So if people want to have the show come to them, they can actually contact you and sponsor this this experience um, to to come to them of this this blending of apologetics and art. So talk to us a little bit ab about the experience that you have created here. Yeah, I wanted it to be immersive. I wanted it to be something that would cause introspection and a safe place to be presented with some ideas for why I believe in Christ and where they can ask questions and if they would like to receive prayer. So this is an exhibit that is comfortably suited for a university, not just a Christian university, but a secular university um, if you want to have it, you know, for a Christian chapter that you have at your church, um, it is a traveling exhibit and, um, you know, I can come and then speak to uh, whoever comes to the exhibit or the church or the, the university um, about some of the themes that are presented in, in the pieces. So they're uh, stations uh, and it's a sensory exhibit. So you have a painting, um, there's poetry or prose with it and a scent that uh, is um, basically drawn from that time in my life when this idea or concept uh, helped convince me that Christianity was true or has continued to help bolster my faith. And um, then there's also a question at each station and a book to be able to answer. So it's a, a quiet exhibit. Uh, it's, people are encouraged to come in and to take their time at each station and one person at a time to take in what the message is. And there's a pamphlet that goes with it as well and explains more of the story behind the piece and the main concept. And so they're given great opportunity to really think about what's being presented and um, why this was impactful to me uh, with regard to leading me to, to Christianity 
and why I continue to be a, a Christian. Now, so. if, if people live in Southern California, this experience is actually going to be part of the Women in Apologetics Conference that's coming up in just a few weeks at Biola University. So if people are coming to the conference, they, sh- they could actually go check out this experience and, and walk through it. Right. So exactly. Um, there's a there's one really neat uh, piece I want Bob to put on the screen, if he can here. Of it's also part of the exhibit. Um, yeah, it's very cool. I really like that one. Um, this is so this is so funny. I have to say because my husband knows, and uh, this piece gave me the most trouble. <laughs> I was really struggling with how to convey this very special story. Uh, that highlighted a a very difficult, but also amazing time in my family's life. And I, I had one canvas scratched it because it was just awful. (laughs) It just was not coming together. And I just kept praying, Lord, please give me your inspiration. What do you want this piece to look like? And then this image just popped into my mind. So, uh, this is what you see. So it's funny because when, um, I first opened the exhibit, uh, here in Florida, somebody asked me, what's your favorite piece? And I said, well, my testimonial piece, which was the first one I painted, uh, which is called the condition of the heart. And then I said, well, what's your favorite piece? And most everybody said this one, which I thought was funny. I said, you know what? I said, I will learn to love it right now. I have a love hate relationship with it because I was so frustrated. <laughs> with, well, with it's, it's it neat down. to kind of hear some of the backstory there on that piece. Cause I, I really enjoyed that one as well. So tell us what, like kind of what, inspires you? Are there any particular artists or pieces of art that have inspired you in your career as an artist? I get inspired by different things. Uh, Books. I I love sci-fi fantasy um, books and shows, and I I just get inspired by the color and the way that they're able to convey emotion. And I'm a member of Christian's Individual Arts, uh, SIVA, and I just love looking at the stuff that's produced in their scene journal uh, that I get sent uh, four times a year. And then they have uh, lots of different shows. The Still Point Gallery that's at RZIM. I love seeing what they're you know, putting up there. And then also you've been to, to one at least I know of, the Fellowship of Performing Arts where they have the C.S. Lewis productions. Yes. Those are really inspiring for me to continue to do what I'm doing because, you know, C.S. Lewis did do that. He did incorporate uh, the arts in apologetics. Yeah, it's a great vision. And I know that you're also a Tolkien fan. And Mm -hmm. that's another one of your inspirations. Um, Yeah. So if you were to describe your endeavor, would you describe yourself as a Christian artist or as an artist who is a Christian, if you know what I'm asking. I would say I'm an artist who is a Christian because there are many great pieces that we would deem as religious art because they're, you know, religious subjects, but they weren't painted by Christians. They might've been sponsored by the church or someone who, you know, uh, belonged to the Catholic church or Christian, uh, but not every work that we would deem as religious or Christian was produced by a Christian. And not everything that I produce has a, um, any like really deep meaning or, um, a Christian emphasis. Some things I just paint because I'm inspired and I love the beauty around me or 
the, there's a character there, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I get inspired by the movies and um, the stories that are told. And I want to capture those stories. So, well, this yeah. is this is a good opportunity for me to give a plug for our show for next week. Actually, I think we're going to be sort of continuing this theme because we're interviewing uh, a guy and he's going to be coming on our show to talk about storytelling and the power awesome. of storytelling to shape ideas and culture. And particularly, he's done focused research on the Disney movies. And, oh, yeah. Um, it's a book. I just finished reading his book called The Trojan Mouse, and it's a history of Disney. And it's a very interesting book. I just read it in a couple of days. I heard him on another podcast, and he was willing to come on on our show. And so hopefully Monique will be better by then. Otherwise, I'll be calling you. And uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about storytelling. And uh, just I thought he had some really interesting thoughts about the power of mythology and how yeah. that can help shape our views as a culture and um, looking at, in particular, at Disney and some of their endeavors of how they have helped to shape cultural values. And it just makes right. me imagine um, the impact and power of storytelling. Um, it's not innate to me. I'm such like a doggedly analytical person. But my children and my husband are very moved by storytelling and filmmaking. And so I love how you're explaining this because I can relate to it, um, right. you know, in your own endeavor. And, and I do think it's important not to just like some people are just wired that way. Uh, they, they are more artistic, but I love how you're bringing together like sound reasons for your faith with the art. Cause, cause sometimes there's a tendency to, to think of, artists like, well, all artists are just liberal and all artists are progressive, but you're kind of displaying a, a different approach to those things. Yeah. And I, I like that you touched on a few things that um, I care a lot about. And I, I like to share with people, which is that art can really create a great environment and a great experience for people to engage with ideas that they may normally never engage with, especially if it's a, a biblical idea. And there's the, the first place where I had the exhibit down here in Florida was at a, is at a United Methodist church. It's in downtown St. Pete where the art district is and right on the artist crawl line. Like you can jump on the trolley and go to the artist crawl um, after you park your car and go to their exhibit. So they have a converted chapel that they are using as an outreach ministry. Um, it's a, a gallery where people, local artists, Christian artists um, can come, sorry, artists that are Christian, I should say, <laughs> um, can come and actually display their work. And people who would normally not set foot in the doors of a church are coming. And you can invite your friends to this and you know have free parking, which is unheard of in most downtown places, especially in St. St. Pete, they can park their car, go to the exhibit, jump on the trolley and go see the rest of the artist crawl. So it's just an incredible opportunity. And it, and it, I loved it because one of the things that my thesis um, highlights is the fact that the arts really create, can create an environment where people can engage with, with different ideas and, you know, that we should be encouraging our churches and encouraging our church members even if they're not artists or maybe they're not big art advocates to incorporate the arts more in their church, to encourage the artists in their church churches 
because they can create experiences whereby people can experience God. And um, I think that the, the arts are definitely going to be the way in which we reach our current culture, our post-truth culture, because you know they're elevating feelings above, above the truth. And so how do we actually reach the heart? Well, I think the art storytelling has a, a big role to play. And so I think, you know, not just visual arts, but, you know, encouraging your, your um, musicians and maybe your, your playwrights and your church to produce things that can really engage the heart and the mind. That's really neat. Uh, I'm going to go over to the chat box here a minute. Our friend Juwad is asking Monique because Monique is on the chat box. So if you guys want to talk to Monique, it's germ-free there in the, uh, <laughs> in the chat box. Uh, and Juwad wants to know what Monique's favorite gospel is. And she said it would have to be John. The gospel of John is her favorite. In fact, we've been reading through that in our family devotions uh, in recent weeks. So um, it is a good gospel. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's a good one. Um, our friend Cynthia Hampton says she has created a whole PowerPoint presentation on superhero movies and Christianity. Boy, I'd love to awesome. know more about that. Cynthia, I didn't know that you were a superhero fan. <laughs> I'm learning something new here. That's very cool. Um, and as you were talking, Rachel, it made me wonder about um, the issue of worldviews. Like as a, as a Christian who's an artist or as an artist who's a Christian, how important is it, do you think, that artists understand the implications of their worldview, that they know how to communicate that? Like, does art, can it, should it just stand on its own and not have any uh, worldview agenda? Or is a worldview would just naturally come through? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, art, art should be enjoyed. Um, and because we were creating the image of God, we've been given the ability to, to create as well. Not obviously from nothing, but we've been able to imagine and create. And that's a good thing. Um, but I think that it never hurts for a Christian to really understand what they believe and why they believe it. And I think every Christian should absolutely engage in apologetic material so they can understand how to um, show their faith with gentleness and respect and not be you know, nervous or, or um, scared about what will people ask me and what if I don't know how to answer them. I think it's just just makes good sense to, to study apologetics and incorporate that into your, your daily routine. But I think for artists, you know, there are a lot of artists who are famous or well-known because their pieces do say something about the human experience, um, whether it be good or the evil, uh, the depravity. Uh, I don't think a lot of artists are, who are well-known are well-known because they did something just, you know, fluffy. I don't know what other word to use. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the worldview of an artist absolutely can come through in the piece, especially if they have the intention for it to, to come through. Well, probably, so I think it is important that we think through our worldview. I mean, probably one of the uh, modern great example of that is C.S. Lewis, like the Narnia books are good art in and of themselves. They stand on their right. own, but they also introduce ideas mm -hmm. about the Christian faith through the books and through right. the art. And so it's, I think what I hear you saying is sort of finding that balance. You don't want to just jam Christianity into the art in an artificial way 
You want mm-hmm. the art to be quality and stand on its own, but ideally to also be provocative and maybe cause people to think or reconsider or consider more deeply their worldview. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis is noted for saying, um, and I can't remember where he says this, if, the, if it's in a letter or if it's in a, one of his books, but he says that some people have thought that when he wrote the, wrote the Narnia series, that he basically started off with this list of things he wanted to basically teach children or tell children, you know, like about Christianity or something. And then he just like worked the story around it. And he said, no, that's not how it happened at all. You know, that it started with this image of a fawn carrying an umbrella and, uh, and it just went from there that it was, it was the art first, the imagery first, and then the rest just naturally came through what he was writing because it was important to him because it was a, a, a major part of his worldview. So, so sort of an yeah, extension I mean, of himself. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I think, you know, what we believe can absolutely come through our work. So that's why I think it, we should be careful about uh, knowing exactly what it is we believe and why we believe it, because people could be influenced by what we create. So as you are an artist, what sort of obstacles have, have you faced that may be unique to working as an artist who's a Christian, like, do people understand what you're up to? Do they tell you to go get a, new, a real job? Like, what are what are some <laughs> of the the obstacles that you've faced? Yeah, um, I think there's sometimes the expectation that I might always pr- just produce stuff that is religious in nature. Um, I remember somebody one time asking me why, you know, when I made a sunset, why I didn't like paint the cross as the sun. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I'm sure they meant well. <laughs> I'm sure they meant well, but I roll my eyes because, but that that's a normal, uh, I think, a feeling I think in some churches is that, you know, we're going to walk down this, the, the, the hallway, we expect to see a portrait of Jesus and maybe the disciples, uh, which is fine. And I actually enjoy those. But I, I think that art that is produced by Christians and art period can be uh, enjoyed also because if you believe in objective beauty, which that's a whole nother discussion, but if you believe in objective beauty, then, you know, God can use all art, no matter if it's produced by a Christian or, or not a Christian. So um, for me, a challenge has been uh, that. And also, and, and I think sometimes I put that on myself as well, this expectation to always produce something that's really meaningful and, and life-changing and, um, conveys my, my Christian faith. Uh, but the other thing too, is the arts community is very, um, as a whole, very different from my ideology. And so finding a community of people who are artists, who are Christians, and we may not always agree on everything, um, within Christianity, um, has been really helpful. So Siva has been a great help to, to have that community of of Christians who are also artists and then just to, to see other people producing things. Um, like I said earlier, the fellowship of performing arts, you know, producing these awesome plays on C.S. Lewis's works. So those have been encouraging. And, and I think the people within the churches and any of my parents who have encouraged me, uh, over the years, um, has been really helpful. Okay. I'm just responding on the chat here a second. Uh, Okay. 
So let me ask you this question, Rachel, as we kind of wrap up this segment, you know what? Uh, I have my daughter, Emily here. I know my other daughter, Abby's watching in the other room. They're both artists. What words of wisdom would you have for a Christian who's an aspiring artist and, and maybe not even mm-hmm. necessarily young, but maybe they're, they're trying to work on their craft. Like what words of wisdom would you give to them? Yeah. Do all things into the glory of God. So, you know, take a lot of pride in your work, um, making sure that it's quality work and taking the time to really, um, find inspiration and, and find a community of people that can encourage you because, you know, the whole, the whole idea of a starving artist, it, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but it, it's, it's very true, uh, that a lot of artists don't make a whole lot of money. So they often have to have other types of work. So don't, don't be discouraged. Cause I went for years, uh, many, many years doing thing jobs that I didn't particularly care for, but I did because I needed to make money. And so it would give me the opportunity to continue pursuing my craft. But I think, um, being open to using your skills in ways that maybe you didn't think that you would. And also as Christians, you just be encouraged that, you know, God has made you in his image that he has given you the ability to imagine and create and that that's good. And that, you know, in the old Testament, uh, when God was giving directions for how to build the tabernacle, like he said, you know, paint these different images and, um, you know, paint pomegranates and they were in colors that you don't normally see. Um, so they were basically imagine, uh, imaginative pomegranates. So, you know, uh, God is for the arts and that the work that you're doing, um, you know, do it, do it to his glory. That's so good. I have like 45 other questions I really want to ask you, but I'm going to (laughs) switch gears here and let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, in a minute here of what's been happening, uh, in the United Methodist church. But before we do that, I want to make sure that all of our viewers are reminded of how they can attend the woman in apologetics conference that's coming up. And they will again, be able to see your, um, art exhibit and experience. And uh, it's not too late to register. They can come in person to the conference at Biola University. And you're doing a breakout session. Monique and I are doing a breakout session. And they're going to hear some really great speakers. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, the Women in Apologetics conference and the inspiration behind that? Yeah, it's exciting. The uh, Find Your Voice theme is, is something that when we, uh, sat down with the people at Biola, uh, we were just all excited about that theme. I think it's, uh, timely, not just for women, just, but for Christians as well to, to find our voice on different topics. So I'm excited that we have so many different, uh, topics covered. I mean, you guys are doing critical race theory. We've got someone, uh, doing, uh, truth, of course, you know, and the basics, you know, the resurrection and, uh, the existence of God. And then we have people talking about how do you have conversation with, with Gen Z, with Jane Panting, who you've, Pantig, who you've had on the show. Yeah. Um, she's doing that one. Uh, and then we have, um, you know, AJ Roberts from Reasons to Believe. She's doing hers on um, basically the intersection of faith and, and science. And so, and then mine's on the intersection of arts, the arts and apologetics. So it's exciting that we're kind of touching on different things that may mean something to different people yeah. because they're in different professions. I think that's really awesome. 
I think it's such a great array of women apologists. And I always like to clarify that it's not a women's conference. It's it right. men are invited. We're not excluding men. It's just that all the speakers are women apologists. And it's a great way for us to try to develop new apologists because often mm-hmm. there aren't as many just quite candidly, there aren't as many speaking opportunities for women to be on on the speaking circuit. And so this is a great way to try to platform some women who are up and coming mm-hmm. and more established. And so we're going to be hearing from our friend Natasha Crane, who is more of an established apologist. But then we're hearing from some people that you, you might not know that are, you know, just equally wonderful. And we want to give them a, a platform. There's graphic uh, our friend Hillary Ferrer is going to be there, the Mama Bear Apologetics author um, and um, others. And if people aren't going to be there in person, we want to mention the live stream. Uh, that Yeah. And it's the first year that we have breakout sessions added. So we have two worship times, the four keynotes and three breakouts and as well. And in addition, our Q&A panel, which you're going to be on. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's going to be great um, to see all of the different things because I want to encourage people, if you can't come in person, think about inviting some people over to your home. Think about, mm-hmm. you know, creating almost like an event. It's not too late. You know, you can right. just get on social media, start networking and create an event at your house. Invite some mm-hmm. people over yeah. for the day. It's going to be some amazing presentations and um, in between the sessions, you can have some fellowship, you can have some lunch, you can talk and just create an awesome experience right where you are. And it's not an expensive thing, but it would be a great way to introduce your, your family and friends to apologetics. Cause there, there's Mm -hmm. a, a, we try to really keep it so that we're, we're onboarding new people into these conversations. Right. It's exciting to have uh, a long list of women that we want to, you know, platform. That's a good problem (laughs) to have. So the exciting thing too, about the live stream event with the three breakouts is that it pretty much means that there's going to be continuous streaming except for breaks in the lunch break on Saturday. And uh, so I've had a couple of people ask me on the East coast, you know, what do I do? Because it's, you know, Pacific time. I said, Hey, you know, some people are doing women's retreats and doing pajama parties, you know, so you could start Friday night, have a pajama party, wake up in the morning, worship and have breakfast together, maybe have some games in the morning and have some of your own speakers at your church, do a couple of sessions on something. And then you join us again from 12 to 8 PM Eastern time. It's great. Uh, We're getting a a, um, question in our chat box from our friend Juwad, who, um, I want to let everyone know Juwad is a, a Muslim, but he loves the show and he loves to tune in and and um, talk to us about his questions about the faith. So this is a good one for Rachel and I to kind of field. Uh, he says, does Christianity have any limitations in terms of carving statues? And, you know, I think that um, there's some question about that because there are churches that that do engage in that and and then there's some commandments about that so maybe Rachel what are some of your thoughts about that 
Yeah, so he's probably specifically referring to like, you know, make no graven images. The second commandment um, in Exodus chapter yeah. 20, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there have definitely been statues made over the years um, and not just statues, but of course paintings. And I, Krista, you and I were just talking about this a few days ago um, because especially in the early um, Catholic church, a, a lot of uh, uh, images started to pop it up of Christians who had gone before martyrs. And it was meant to be, they were meant to be encouragement an encouragement to um, Christians to stay strong in the faith and to look at, you know, those who have gone before and that they laid down their lives for their faith. And, uh, but over the years, you know, um, over the centuries, uh, some people, uh, not everyone, of course, but some people began to um, kind of pray to those, those images and in a sense, worship them or the veneration of saints. And so there was a strong contrast uh, or sorry, uh, strong reaction to, to that yeah. with the uh, Protestant church. And I, so, yeah, I think that that's a really important distinction that you're bringing up. Um, in in the the history of Christianity, there's kind of two streams. There's East and West, and in the mm -hmm. East, they use what are called icons, and iconography is is quite ancient. I mean, it goes back to the early yeah. early church of, you know, second century, you know, one hundreds. It's 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 very early, and icons were not intended to be literal. Um, in fact, they're, they're, they're highly symbolic. For example, mm -hmm. if somebody has a large forehead, that means something. I think it means they have great wisdom. If somebody has a beard, it means something. If they have their left hand raised or their right hand raised or their fingers are doing something, uh, the colors mm -hmm. have symbolic meaning. And there's a whole um, kind of art of read, what's called reading icons, you don't just look at an icon, you read an icon. It's like reading a book almost. And everything in the icon has symbolic meaning. So it's not right. intended to be like what you're doing, Rachel, is, is more of realism. When you paint somebody's picture, you want it to look like that person. Um, mm -hmm. But icons are not intended to look like the person. They're, they're more symbolic. People, That's exactly right. Yeah, Christians mm -hmm. in the East use them to inspire them to um, pray and inspire them to um, live like those people. They, they, it's like when I was a kid hanging a poster on my wall of my favorite sports hero. And it would, <laughs> it would cause me to be inspired to maybe if I'm, if, if I really like basketball, I wanted to play as good as Michael Jordan, you know, and <laughs> Um, we would be inspired by these images. Well, it's sort of similar to that. Um, maybe right. I feel inspired by looking at the American flag and it's very special and it gives me a special feeling and connection when I look at it. And it's, it's a sense we call in America, we call it patriotism. And mm -hmm. so icons are kind of function a little bit like that for Christians in the East. In the Western tradition, um, over time, um, in mid to later Catholicism, because remember, Catholicism didn't even exist until 1000 AD, um, 
the tradition in the West was more about carving statues. And that's a little bit different than how they do it in the East. So your question, Juad, about limitations, uh, when Protestants come along, as Rachel was saying, Protestants, um, one of the things that they do is they want to do away with all images of God. And they see them as a violation of the second commandment. And um, they would say that God was, was to not take a form or an image to the point that in some Protestant denominations, it's almost blasphemy to even have a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall in your church. And you would, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Right. Or Jesus hanging on the cross. Yes. Right. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, there's some differences among Christians about some of those limitations. I think Christians are pretty united about not worshiping the images themselves. They're supposed to be venerated, which is not the same thing as worship. So it's different than idolatry. It's rather more closer to our idea of inspiring us to worship. And so it's important to make, to make that distinction. However, that's not to say that it's sometimes it does degenerate into a form of idolatry. And so Protestants historically wanting to avoid that trap have, have steered away from, from using images by and large in their worship. So, yeah. And you're right about the, the early church, you know, would have been in, in, um, influenced by Rome as well, which is why um, I think we, as early as, like you said, the second century, we already have um, some images starting to pop up before then it was mostly just symbols. And especially because Christians were on, you know, were hiding on the run. They didn't have a whole lot of time to, you know, produce art. Um, so most of the quote unquote art that they created um, during the, the, you know, the first century um, would have been just symbols, you know, across um, the fish and loaves, the, the fish. Yeah. The, yeah, the, it, it, yeah. Fish and loaves. Um, and then the, one of the first um, images that, that shows up in the second century is Jesus with the lamb over his shoulders. And then you have some other images start popping up. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So that's kind of a crash course on uh, the the interesting world of Christianity and using uh, images. So hopefully that helps you out, Juad, in in your question. And as usual, you always have very thoughtful thoughtful questions um, about our faith, and you seem to be quite quite familiar with many aspects of our faith. Um, I think that all right. Let's get into uh, before we uh, round out the show here. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in the United Methodist Church. And this is our tweet of the week. (laughs) This is what we cue in. All right. Monique's not here to dance with me. It's very sad. It's just me. I'll rock it. Yeah. Okay, so the tweet of the week came from Beckett Cook, who is a former, um, he, he's, he would identify himself, I think it's fair to say, as a former gay man, uh, became a Christian a few years ago. And I think I have his tweet here. There it is. Um, he, he became a Christian and he posted a link to this big article that was in the New York Times earlier today, and he just quoted this verse from 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers 
to suit their own passions. And I thought that was a pretty powerful tweet coming from Mr. Cook um, as somebody who has come out of the gay lifestyle and come into Christ and um, having his desires transformed. Um, I think uh, it's sort of an interesting take on it um, in really differentiating the, the, the problem or the situation in the United Methodist Church. And again, Rachel, you're a lifelong Wesleyan and Wesleyans are, I think, a type of Methodist. I think I got that yeah. right. And um, <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about what has been happening in the United Methodist Church, and then we'll get into some of the more recent events. Yeah, uh, about three years ago from February, uh, the Way Forward, which was the, the campaign that was tasked uh, to um, delegates to a, a group of delegates to dis, to discuss and come up with some plans to propose to the general conference um, in 2019, spring 2019, um, to basically address what has been going on for a long time, which is that there are churches uh, predominantly in the West and the North of, of the United States and then in the UK uh, and other places that uh, wanted to allow um, those who are practicing homosexuals to be ordained within the United Methodist Church and to um, allow same-sex unions. So there uh, were three different proposals that were made in the spring of last year. And one was the progressive plan, one was the traditional plan, and one was called the One Church Plan. And so um, the one that won the votes was the traditional plan, which they they chose to stay uh, with, with their views on um, same-sex marriage that um, they don't would not permit it that uh, their stance is that um, for traditional marriage between one man and one woman so now and now part of the issue in play here has been there I mean historically this this is not a new controversy like United Methodists have been in this conversation about um, same-sex relationships same-sex marriage um, ordaining gay and lesbian Mm -hmm. uh or are they called priests in the United Methodist Church? I don't know what they're called. Pastors. Ministers, yeah. Ministers, so, yeah. So um, that's been a couple of decades that that discussion has been happening. But more recently, in February, there was kind of these, the big national meeting where some big decisions were, were finally made. It was like, they had the world's longest study committee. Like, I've never heard of <laughs> yeah. a of a denomination taking like 20, 30 years to decide an issue. But, but, but really what was behind it, I think was a good thing and that they were wanting unity. They, they were, didn't want to just immediately like split off, you know, which Protestants are very good at doing. Like, you know, the word protest is right in our title. (laughs) So, you know, you get mad, you go off, you splinter off and you do your own thing. And I, I mean, I admire the fact that, that Methodists take, Jesus's words in the high priestly prayer very seriously of trying to stay united. And so they were taking their time in deciding this matter. However, in in February, it really came to a head um, Mm -hmm. where there were these, these three plans. Now you, you ran us through them briefly. Like one was the, the one church plan, which was the plan of, kind of we're just going to let each church decide on its own whether it's going to go down a progressive path or a 
the traditional marriage path. And yeah. And then the second position was more the traditional position. And that was backed by um, the group. The Wesleyan Covenant Association. The Wesleyan Covenant Association. Yeah. So I think we have a screen cap of their website. So these are the people who are advocating for the more traditional position of we're not going to ordain um, active practicing homosexuals and we're not going to uh, engage in allowing marriages, uh, same-sex marriages. Those are sort of the two big issues. Then there was a third route of the progressive position where we're just going to have the whole United Methodist Church be progressive and go down that path. So those were sort of the three plans that were laid out. The one church plan did not win. Um, right. The traditional plan won, but there's some interesting dynamics there of mm-hmm. how it won. Like talk to us a little bit about some of those events of how it was that the traditional position won. Yeah, I think predominantly the reason why it won was because, you know, the United Methodist Church is not just uh, a church, are not just churches in the United, United States. They are in Europe, um, in Africa, South America, and some other places as well. And so the delegates from Africa uh, and South America and Russia uh, predominantly were the ones that were pushing for the traditional uh, plan. And, and because there are countries in Africa where it's still illegal, where homosexuality itself is illegal. And so they weren't going to be able to um, um, align themselves with, with the church um, if, it, if it went progressive. So I think that that was a really interesting moment. And that was sort of before we started the show. So we didn't get a chance to talk about it last February, but the African delegates were, were, and the South American delegates were really pushing for the traditional position. And that's what gave the votes to um, pass the traditional plan and why the, the one church plan failed because the United Methodist church is a global church. It's not just an American church. And there was an impassioned uh, speech that was given by one of the African bishops, basically, and I read the transcript of this last February, and he was basically telling the progressives in America, um, stop trying to rewrite doctrine, stop trying to rewrite what the church says. And this is what the Bible teaches. And it was it was pretty um, direct uh, toward toward the progressives, and um, those votes from the African and the South American delegates ended up winning the day um, mm. at at that convention. So now today, um, it was announced the the actual plan for what the United Methodist Church is going to do, and basically, it's going to now officially divide. So kind of walk us through sort of some of the broad parameters of that. Yeah. So it's basically the, the traditional, um, that's traditional, uh, churches, uh, that are going to be leaving the United Methodist church. And so they're going to be forming their own denomination. And, uh, based on the research that I've done so far, because it is such new news, (laughs) uh, but we've kind of seen the writing on the wall is that, um, it'll once the the annual conference which happens in each 
I think it's each state or region. There's uh, states that are included sometimes in one annual conference. Once they make a decision, um, then each church basically, I believe from what I've read, um, will have their administrative council, which I'm on my church's administrative council. Um, they will meet. And if someone uh, makes a motion that they want the church to vote on whether or not they will stay within the United Methodist Church or if they want to leave, um, then you know, it has to be seconded, of course, it has to be passed. And then the, but they have 60 days, the church has 60 days to hold a church conference that the district superintendent of that area, so we're in uh, mine, we're in the Gulf Central District, you know, they, that superintendent would have to attend, um, conduct that, that church's conference. And then the church members, um, you know, they have to give them a, enough notice, of course, they would attend and then there would be a vote. And so then that church would get to decide what, you know, if they want to stay within, within the United Methodist Church denomination or if they want to leave. So those who are leaving are going to be those who are on the more traditional or conservative position. Right. And those who will be staying in the United Methodist Church are those who are, we might say, a more progressive um, stream. And so every church now is going to have to decide where are we going? Like what, what bucket are we going to go in? And they're going to have to have some sort of vote about that. And so it's really kind of forcing churches that up until now had been living because there have been sort of three approaches to, to even dealing with this on the local level. Like some churches would just remain conservative if their senior minister was conservative and that was sort of how they were going um, other churches were more progressive and that was pretty well known. And then there were some churches that were kind of in the middle of we're, mm -hmm. we're not going to take an official position. We're just going to kind of whosoever God brings to the church may come type right. of thing. And, but we're not going to take an official position about this. Now, everybody's going to have to kind of decide what stream they're going to, they're right. going to go in. Yeah. And, and no matter what, there's going to be a lot of changes in the local churches, uh, because you're going to either have, if the church doesn't uh, call for a vote uh, to decide if they want to stay with the denomination or if they want to leave, um, then you're going to have conservative people leaving those churches um, and looking for um, the traditional uh, churches that are going to be creating a new denomination. So um, no matter the, what happens, you're going to have people leaving. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, um, that it's come to this, but, um, uh, just because, you know, the United Methodist Church has, has had a long history of, um, togetherness. Yeah. So now in, in California where I live, the United Methodist churches are mostly liberal. Um, some are more middle of the road, but you kind of have to go church by church. Now I know in other parts of the country, they can be more traditional and it just sort of de depends. Um, now the United Methodist church officially in their book of discipline, which is their official kind of doctrine book mm -hmm. doesn't endorse gay marriage and right. it doesn't allow for ministers to marry same sex couples. And that was part of the, the question because many mm -hmm. churches had we're open about recruiting right. people um, in the LGBT community, actively recruiting those people into their fellowships, and then they would want to get married. 
And the book of discipline didn't allow that. And that's what's kind of created this, this, this whole thing is sort of coming to a head now. So it would be unfair to say that all Methodist churches allow um, gay and lesbian same-sex marriages. Would would that be accurate? Yeah. And, and there were churches in the the West and in the North um, United Methodist churches who were already conducting same-sex marriages and ordaining um, practicing homosexuals and, um, and not just pastors, but also um, district superintendents and bishops. And so um, it, it came to the point where, because they were going against the book of discipline, which is also kind of it's kind of structured like our judicial system in the United States, uh, the book of discipline. So because they, nothing was being done to actually prevent it or, um, to reprimand those who are going against the book of discipline, uh, that that's why I think it all really just came to a head and they realized we, we've got to address this. And that's why the way forward was started. So when we think about what's going to happen in the future. And, and I want to let people know that um, actually I took the time to look up and read through the official document that came out from the study group uh, or the committee. I don't know what the proper nomenclature is, but um, I read through it. It's a lot of um, legal language, <laughs> but people can yeah. get it. If you want to search for this document, the protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation is the name of the document. And people can get that document. It has all the protocols in it. I I really feel like I need Lori Stewart, our lawyer friend to read through it and interpret (laughs) some of it for us. But basically it's, it's an amicable way of separating the denomination. And so that those churches that leave the United Methodist church won't lose their buildings. Um, The traditional churches that stay in the traditional stream, the conservative stream will be able to keep their buildings. They're also going to receive some some, uh, financial remuneration, so there's there's a lot of aspects to this, but they've agreed to kind of peaceably uh, part company, if you will, and and that right. um, that's all outlined in that document. If if any of the the nerds out there want to know about it, or if they're Methodists who are watching, I know my friend Susanna's watching, and uh, she is a United Methodist, so she's listening in on everything that we're saying right now. Um, now we should probably. It, clarify that we in no way want to villainize um, our friends and family who belong to the LGBT community or who are gay affirming. I mean, I know that you have friends who are gay and um, we love them and um, we invite them. We want to invite them into our local churches. We want to create a space for them. But our position is as the book of discipline says in the United Methodist church. And as Christians have historically affirmed that um, being gay is something that God can, can set you free from. And that that's not God's ultimate plan for your life. That's not how you were created to be. So I just kind of was wondering what your thoughts are about that and just clarifying what we're saying here. Yeah, I, no, I think that's exactly right what you're saying. And, and yeah, I do have friends that are gay and, and people who are um, gay affirming when I say that, you know, like for uh, gay marriage and everything. And, um, and just like um, a lot of things, um, you know, we all, 
uh, it's hard to talk about. <laughs> um, we all struggle with something, with something. And so um, I have a lot of respect uh, for people who are gay, uh, my friends who are gay and, and those who are gay affirming, you know, they are made the image of God as well. And they have equal value, dignity and worth. And so I have nothing but love for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's really important that not get lost in, in all of this is just clarifying this is going to apparently become the dividing line in our culture of so many churches. I don't think this is, this isn't the first church to split over this issue. And I don't think it's going to be the last um, right. because this is becoming kind of the defining issue of our time of what is going to set apart his, the historic Christian faith on um, what Christians have traditionally affirmed versus more, a more progressive point of view. So mm -hmm. Um, anyways, that's, that's kind of a little bit about that. So if people want to check out the New York times article, they can do that. It just came out earlier today. A United church, United Methodist church announces plan to split over same sex marriage and people can read about it there. So, um, thanks for helping me out, Rachel. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure and honor. And I'm sad Monique wasn't there though. <laughs> I know. Right. But uh, Rachel was a good sport coming on at the last minute. Um, <laughs> Dexter, like an hour arm. and a half he before the show. <laughs> oh, will you please help me? So anyways, yeah. um, I think that, um, Oh, we got a couple of comments. So this will be a good way to sort of round things out. Uh, Monique says, thank you <laughs> for filling in Rachel. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, Dan is watching us today. Um, and he, I think maybe has a different point of view than we do. And that's fine. We welcome that, um, on the issue of the LGBT community and the church. And he, he says, if you knew God, you wouldn't be vain. God can set you free from your vanity. I'm assuming he's talking to us, Rachel. It's not terribly clear, but, um, that's okay. Uh, I think, you know, Dan, if we've said anything of, that's come across as prideful. I think Rachel said it really well that, you know, we're both sinners. We both struggle. Yeah. Um, every Christian has struggles that they have to go through and that we ask the Holy spirit to help us with. And then we invite that transforming yeah. power to help us come more and more in conformity with the image of Christ. And um, it's just that we at all the things and Rachel and all of our friends at women in apologetics, we just take the view that um, the issue of homosexuality is a sin um, just like any other sin. And it is um, a struggle for some people and, and none of us are better than anyone else when it comes to a struggle right. with sin. Um, we That's all right. have our struggles and some of them um, are very hard and we struggle with them for our whole lives, but by God's mm -hmm. grace, we continue to walk in faith, cooperate with the power of the Holy spirit. And our hope is not to condemn anybody. It's just to invite people like Beckett cook that we started the segment with, um, the, uh, to walk into the transforming power of the Holy spirit. So, amen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that 
it's just a really big conversation that we're having right now in our culture about, and I think it, I, I did a, vo- a video um, week before last, I posted it on the revoice position um, that's coming into the church. And really the big question that we have to wrestle with is whether or not sexual orientation is something that is inborn um, in the sense of like, it can be inborn in different people in different ways or whether all of us are create as we are created by God's design for um, what we call heterosexual marriage. I mean, that's really what a lot of the debate is going to come down to. So mm. it's a, it's the big question of our time of, and the cultural moment that we're in as to how mm. that, how that works. So. Right. And I, and I know people who have come out I'm of hearing some um, moaning upstairs. Are you coming to be on the show? <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I know people who have come out of the, the um, homosexual lifestyle and it, it is, it has a, deep psychological, um, effect. Okay. And, um, so, all right. So we have a request from a five-year-old viewer. So Monique's going to be on camera. <laughs> Hi. She would Hi. only do this. Rough. She would only do this for a child. Let me tell you friends. That to- Maria Kane said totally off topic, but my five-year-old asked to watch you guys every night at bedtime. And after your last few weeks of illness, she specifically wants to see both of you Hi. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, this that child knew how to how to get you out of bed because oh, nobody, no, no adult would she would get out of bed for them. But if it was a child, yes. yeah, she would. Yeah, no, I would not get out of bed for any adult. No, but a five year old, yes. How <laughs> awesome and amazing, um, Andrew. And I love your shirt. Thank you. Yes, I don't know what camera I should be looking at. Maybe this one. Yes, yeah. Women in Apologetics. Here it is. Yeah. Yes, there it is. Yes. Thank you for praying, Kimba. Yes, you, can, you guys can hear. I sound like like I just woke up or yeah. I don't know. You're breathing Something. all over me. My voice is deep. <laughs> Sorry. I told Monique earlier. Oh, my eyes. Y'all, my eyes are swollen, people. <laughs> Woo, somebody pray. Okay, we're going to sign off now. Okay. All right. Thank you, Juwan. All right. Bye. Aww. I told Monique she needs to just ask for a tray of tea and soup and be like, and walk away. <laughs> well, I want to thank Leave you, everyone. Um, thanks for uh, all your comments and engaging us in the chat box. And I'm going to go on the chat box here in a few minutes when we sign off and answer some of your questions. And so if you want to stay tuned for that, we will. I will do that. Okay, everyone, thanks so much for watching. Bye-bye.